Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. My name is Adam Homie. I'm your host, and I am once again honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. Picture yourself sitting in a mastermind conversation, listening to the back and forth, and searching for those aha moments and mastermind nuggets that can move you closer to serving from your intersection of your brilliance or your passion, and possibly even changing your trajectory, providing you the answers to questions you didn't even think to ask. That's what we invite you to do as you tune into the Business Creators Radio Show. Today I'm coming to you from my purple couch in my sumptuous apartment here in Las Vegas, Nevada, known to some as the hottest city in America, and I'm joined by both of my podcast production assistants, which avid listeners know are my cats, Alessandra and Stella. At any rate, we are going to be speaking today about the commitment trap, and this is about how entrepreneurs can end up in an escalated commitment to a failed project. So just to give you a little bit of background, we've seen research that shows that although four out of five entrepreneurs believe they have a good, if not certain, chance of success, 74% of new startup businesses fail, most often due to overconfidence and loss aversion. Further, according to research team Stahl and Ross, as well as Kahneman and Tversky, decision makers tend to escalate their commitment even when they know they're failing in a course of action. So just hear that again. Decision makers tend to escalate their commitment even when knowing they're in a failing course of action. Our guest is going to tell us so much more about this, so I'm going to stop right there and introduce him. His name is Dr. Vincent DiFilippo. Uh, DBA, MBA. As a fellow MBA, I welcome him. He's a professor in the School of Accounting and Business at Monroe College. Now, before that, he was the CEO of a private equity fund in Hong Kong, raising $7 billion in venture capital for entrepreneurs and publicly traded companies throughout the Asia-Pacific region. So this is somebody who certainly has the credentials to speak on this topic. He's a member of the Writers Guild and holds a doctorate in business administration with a concentration in behavior, decision-making, and leadership. Further, Dr. Filippo has two master's degrees, holy moly, along with professional certifications from Harvard, Brown, MIT, Columbia, New York Film Academy, and the Hollywood Film School. And his new book is called Breaking Point. And I'm going to spell that for you. B-R-A-K-I-N-G, not B-R-E-A-K-I-N-G. Breaking is in Hit the Breaks. How Escalation of Commitment is Destroying the World and How You Can Save Yourself. And with that, Vincent, come on in. The weather's fine. Thank you very much for having me today. I appreciate the opportunity to be here with you and your audience. I'm excited to uh, to participate, and I'm grateful for the opportunity. Absolutely. Now, what's also interesting about the Business Creators Radio Show is we're also a from-the-field podcast. We don't have a $25,000 
Hollywood Quality Studio. And our guests have dialed in from places as interesting as an airport hangar in Tel Aviv, and you could hear the IDF jets flying over. We had somebody dial in from the Colombian rainforest in the middle of a downpour. You could hear the the beads of of raindrops beating on the tent that she was inside. So, and today we're speaking with Dr. DiFilippo, and he is actually um, in transit between a couple client engagements. So sometimes we catch people where we even catch them. So, Vincent, I read off your official bio. It's so impressive that. I'm not even sure I'm worthy to be in your presence, and this is my show. So uh, what I'd like to do is ask you in your own words, tell us a bit about your journey and what's brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. My journey's been a long journey, um, lots of trials and errors, um, mistakes, you know, setbacks, learning lessons, and um, some great successes as well. Uh, I started selling newspapers on the Verrazano Bridge when I was 13 years old, just so I could make enough money, um, which is about $20 a day. And I started investing in baseball cards and comic books and building up my collectibles and uh, learning how to be a salesman, you know, at that early age, um, you know, to try to negotiate uh, better books, better cards. So um, then I saw a movie, you know, Wall Street and Charlie Sheen, Michael Douglas, of course, you know, famous movie. It kind of gave me some inspiration to go, you know, I wanted to be like, I wanted to be Bud Fox from the movie before he got caught and arrested. I wanted the success story. So I went to work on Wall Street. Um, I actually dropped out of high school at that time. And I I was able to get a job as a cold caller, talking to investors, telling people um, about stocks. And this was right around when the internet was starting to um, you know, just pop up. The World Wide Web was a new thing. Um, companies like Microsoft were just, you know, coming out. And it was an exciting time. Um, eventually, I went back to school. Um, I, I realized that knowledge is power, and I tried to work on my skills. And I went back to get my degrees. Maybe I've, I got too many degrees, too many certifications, but I believe you never stop learning in life. And um, the the setbacks that I've had, all those learning lessons that I like to use even when I mentor and teach young entrepreneurs. But it's been a long journey in stocks, in consulting um, throughout the world. I lived in 16 different cities, 11 different countries, and I've been able to meet some wonderful entrepreneurs from different cultures, different ethnicities, different backgrounds. And, you know, um, it's great to see how they made it. And I'm always asking people, how'd you do that? Because You know, you don't know everything in the world, right? But you keep on asking and keep on learning and doing the things that you're doing every day, helping young entrepreneurs and business people like myself. You know, it's um, this is what it's all about. Fantastic. So question for you is, since you mentioned Wall Street, is greed good? Depends on who you ask, but (laughs) I believe greed can be a good thing if it's applied in the right context. Like, you know, making money does not have to be a bad thing. Going to school, getting an education, starting a company, you know, uh, making significant capital where you can live a a better quality of life. Those are good things. But you have to look at what does the money do? You know, it shouldn't be just about making money. Could we feed the poor? Can we educate, you know, kids to, you know, develop skills that they can go on and, you know, eventually develop their own life and and help their families and help their loved ones? Um, Can we figure out a way to make money to get clean water for our 8 billion people in our world. You know, how do we help the communities? How do we help, you know, get a cleaner environment? 
Um, unfortunately, money is the answer to some of these initiatives, but it takes people to actually apply the effort and the money. So if greed is done in a positive way, in a good way, with integrity and honor, um, it could be good, um, but it's going to fall back on who the person is. Now, you and I have seen the movie, uh, and it sounds to me like it made quite an imprint on you as it did on me. I've seen it maybe 30 or 40 times over the years. Uh, <laughs> and what I, yeah, what I, I see what I mean. And uh, and what I like to point out to people, and I think you probably noticed this too, is that the Gordon Gecko character did not say greed is good. He didn't say it? Are you sure? I'm I thought positive. he was giving a paper. He was talking about the paper company. He was You're giving... Right. Yeah. Yeah, he did not say wow. greed is good. Oh wow. That's a that's a man that, now that, you challenged me to watch the movie again. That's yeah, that, that is. Yeah, that that that's a Mandela effect that has been exacerbated by some of the trailers they created at the time where they edited the clip. What he actually said is the oh, greed wow. the greed for lack of a better word is good. He didn't say it was good. He said, uh -huh. for lack of a better word, it was good, which actually kind of leads to the point that you just made, that uh, when applied properly, the natural impulse or drive that some call greed is actually a very positive thing. It inspires us to better our best. It inspires the creation of empires. And uh, I haven't seen how it's fixed this malfunctioning corporation called the U.S. of A, but I mean... Uh, but uh, it's a good thought. Now, what is now Bert going one step further? And I cover this in my book: is uh, if it's if greed is not good, what is it? And by saying greed, for lack of a better word, is good, opens the possibility for a conversation about what actually is greed and how do we apply it, and is greed even the proper name for it? So rather than making the absolute statement of greed is good, which we were taught as kids. Don't be greedy. Did you ever get caught in class uh, bringing a candy bar you weren't supposed to have? Sure. <laughs> and uh, and the, the teacher caught you, and what did you have to do the next day? I had to bring in enough for the whole class. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Because you were being taught, don't be greedy. So we're taught that greed is this bad thing. I When I speak on stages... I do a personality assessment with volunteers in the audience. And one of the 25 questions I ask them uh, in the assessment they fill out beforehand is to answer the same question I asked you, is greed good? And it's a multiple choice and they can choose yes, no, define greed or the three options. Wow. And I can tell you that uh, this is uh, this is not highly scientific. I haven't actually put this on spreadsheets to get an exact number. But I think about ninety percent of respondents choose the choose option three, which is define greed, which shows that among and that's a good point that you made yeah. because we all have different lenses, right? We all have different perspectives, and we interpret words, communication, hand gestures, you know, subtle movements in different ways. And that's a problem in our country now because no one seems to interpret things in the right light. But, you know, getting back to that word greed, some people would say greed is ambition. Some people, you know, would say that it requires hard work. And I look at it like greed in its, in its core sense, you know, where it drives you to forget about your family, your children, your friends, the people around you who care about you. And you're driven by just money or the pursuit of it and power then it's a bad word. It's an ugly word. 
But if greed is put in the context of I'm an ambitious person, I want to educate myself, put myself in the right position, you know, so I can go on and achieve some of those goals that and everyone has different goals, achieve some of those goals and objectives that I feel would give me the quality of life that I desire and deserve, you know, and I apply the effort, the work ethic to do that, to go make that whatever amount of money um, you envision, then greed can be, you know, a decent, but you have to give back. Once you receive, you always have to give back to other people because um, you keep on refilling your cup, uh, your knowledge cup, your, you know, your goodness cup, and your wealth actually comes even more. You know, and it's funny you mentioned filling the cup because that's one of the analogies I use in my book is it, I, I can serve so many more people from an overflowing cup than I can by giving my last dime. Amen. Yes. Yeah. And so and so. I wanted to bring this up very briefly. You kind of inspired it by mentioning the movie Wall Street, and I just couldn't resist. But it actually ties into what we're discussing today, in a way, this idea of escalation of commitment and how sometimes what happens is that uh, you have this quality in entrepreneurs that leads them to escalate their commitment to a failed a failed project or a failed initiative or something like that. So we can speak about uh, spiral of diminishing returns and rational decision-making being missing in financial decisions. But let's start with some of the basics is, uh, you know, let's leave practically with an example, a modern day example of an escalation of commitment in a business context where it was to use a metaphor, putting good money after bad. Well, I stumbled upon this when I looked at myself. I, I was a, I was a very, I was a pretty successful stock trader. You know, equities market, stock market, and I would buy stocks, and sometimes I would have big wins because I did all my homework, I studied my charts, and then there were other times I studied my charts, did my homework, and the stock would go the other way, and I would have a loss, and I could not understand what was wrong. And later on, when I was introduced to, you know, Stone Ross and Kahneman and Tversky, these wonderful academics who had these theories, loss aversion and escalation of commitment, I realized that it was me. It was my cognitive biases. It was my stereotypes. It was my fear of losing. And the escalation of commitment, give an example on a stock. Let's just, for example purposes, I bought a stock at a dollar. Okay, what these studies you know, found with these much smarter academics than myself, okay, what they found is, let's say the stock goes from $1 to a dollar fifty, most of the people, okay, a large majority of the people become risk averse. They want to preserve their gain, okay, and they sell, right? Instead of riding the winning stock and actually maybe in investing more as it's going higher, they become risk averse. On the flip side, stock goes from a dollar down to fifty cents. What happens? Most people become risk takers. They want to average their loss. They want to do average cost down. They think the stock's going to go back up to that dollar level because they anchor in the previous price, right? That anchoring effect, um, which is used a lot in the auto industry, is a really important tool because we start thinking, well, I liked it at a dollar. I should love it at 50 cents. But what happens is the stock goes lower. It's like catching a falling knife. And then the way things are framed, sometimes in a positive or negative element, that helps, that really causes us to make you know, certain decisions that might end up poorly. So the studies were done in, in this context of project management. 
how these these investors or these these businesses were putting more money behind a failing project, and it was because they were justifying their original analysis. They were afraid to lose, and they were feeling that they were responsible for this. They had to make it work, and all these elements put them in an irrational state. And their own biases, right? We all have biases as humans. Um, those own cognitive biases cause it to go into a, a negative position. And you can apply this to anything in our life, relationships, investing, project management, politics. Um, people like to escalate because they don't like to lose, even an argument. I hope that makes sense. Oh, it makes that makes way lots of sense. And I think some of that might, because I was thinking about this before you logged in, that some of this might go back to how children are raised in our society. What are some of the messages we're giving as children that uh, if you don't see something through, you are a quitter, which makes you a loser. And then there's the whole thing. Well, if you give, if you make a commitment, if you make a promise, you stick by it no matter what. Well, what happens when that becomes untenable? So what we have here, I believe are conflicting values. On the one hand, there's the value of being as good as your word, following through on your commitments, not giving up. And on the other, there is the, the value of wanting to be successful, knowing that a rising tide buoys all ships, your success becomes the success of others and vice versa. And overall, if you started a business, you want to commit to it, see it through, not back down. So I'm sensing that there's a, you know, yeah, I'm sensing there's a little confusion going on here. You have to persist until you succeed at all costs. Don't take no for an answer, right? These are the the the, the elements, the characteristic of an entrepreneur, big thinker, someone that's going to go to the end. But unfortunately, what a a lot of entrepreneurs or business leaders, you know, do not see is sometimes the writing on the wall. Okay, and all the cracks in the armor of a changing environment. Okay, mm-hmm. sometimes the environment's changing. We're talking about the economic environment, the global business environment, right. even our competition. So we have to continually monitor this business environment. We have to look for these changes. We have to see where are the cracks in my armor. You know, is how's the competition competing with me as far as pricing and costs and everything that they do, right? So it's 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 challenging. Because as a business leader, sometimes you're wearing multiple hats. You could be administration, you could be sales, you could be marketing, you could be a CEO, you know, you could be a janitor sometimes, you know, changing the garbage pails because, you know, in the beginning you're bootstrapping, right? And as you scale up, you know, um, you're more focused on the bigger picture, but sometimes things slip. So you have to continually evaluate and monitor what's going on in my world, which is my business world what's going on outside, and you have to really check back. When I started this, what were my values? What were my goals? You know, what did the data look like? How has any of that changed? And what can I do to apply you know, a revision? It doesn't, well, my book kind of maybe I'm not clear enough is, you, know, you don't have to just stop. Okay, it's over, I made a mistake. Really, you know, sometimes you have to when it's been you know, enormous amounts of capital and it's just not working, but if you just stop and pause and adapt, revise your business model, maybe go with those changes in a way that can make your venture successful, you know, it's going to be a better outcome. And if you can't find those solutions, then you may have to transition you know, down another path, maybe shut down the business and go in a different direction. 
Um, it's hard, right? It's hard being a business owner and an entrepreneur um, or a leader of any company um, because there's so many variables that affect us. Yeah. So what are some of the other red flags that businesses miss that can lead to an escalation of commitment? Like, because, uh, you know, hindsight being 2020, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, <laughs> hindsight is twenty twenty. We use that saying on Wall Street a lot when the stock goes, you know, up and we missed it. Um, you know, some of the red flags, like, you know, if you're not making money, okay, if you're not able to get, take a salary or some some cash to take care of your family, and it's an ongoing thing where there's no light at the end of the tunnel, you really got to think and you know question yourself. You know, have I made the right decisions? Do I have the right team around me? You know, am I pricing my product or service, you know, appropriately? You know, has the data changed in any way um, from where, you know, from where I initially started, you know, putting this together? Um, you know, have I changed as a leader and a person? Have my values changed or my objectives? Right. So we want to just make sure constantly monitoring this, you know, this environment that we're in. I'm talking about our business environment and, you know, we also want to understand if there are things that have changed, how has this impacted my business? How's it impacted my business plan, my initial goals, right? Um, if it's impacted significantly, then I have to always think about how can I put a brainstorming session together with people I respect and admire who have experience? Maybe they can help me out of this. Um, those red, and red flags, other red flags are thinking that I know everything. You know, when I was a young man in my 20s, when I, when I was in shape and had hair and <laughs> I was ready to go, um, at that stage, I thought I knew everything. Well, I back was then afraid you did. to ask questions. Back then, you did know everything. Sorry? Well, back then, you did know everything. <laughs> when, between the ages of 18 and 25, you know everything. And then, and then something changes. It's weird. Because I'll tell you, back, back then, I had the solutions to every single problem in the world if only these people would have listened. <laughs> I'm going to use that line. I hope you don't mind. <laughs> well, I stole from somewhere too, so go right ahead. Okay, thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, but you're right, you know. And and you know, at the end of the day, what I've learned about myself and some of the other leaders I've consulted with, you know, is we have to hold ourselves accountable, and we can't be afraid to question ourselves or ask questions of other people, people that have different experiences. That's why I always like to have a diverse workforce, people from all over the world, different backgrounds and experiences, different successes and, and setbacks. And, you know, we get different eyeballs on the problem, right? And we brainstorm and we talk about how can we work through this together as a team, right? When I have an open mind, um, we can accomplish everything. But in the past, when I did not have an open mind and I thought I knew it all, that was a major red flag that I should have caught. Um, but when you think you know it all, it's hard to catch these red flags. Yeah, and I, I, I certainly, I mean, I mean, I know when I started my uh, business, is a, essentially started as a side hustle. I was twenty six years old. Yeah, twenty six years old, and I was still at that point where I basically knew it all. And two years later, it became a full time gig for me, and I still went through a period for a couple years where. I had all the answers to everything. And then this weird thing happened around 2008, 2009, about four years in. And suddenly I realized I didn't know much at all. It, it actually got <laughs> to the point, it actually got to the point a few years later where I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. Like I didn't know what business I wanted to be in. So for three years, 
I didn't even have a website to market or a service to offer. I simply wow. kept my business going off my existing clients and hosting this podcast we're on right now, the Business Creators Radio Show, which gave me 52 new conversations per year and an opportunity to explore a lot of things. And a little bit of good you're doing. Yeah, and, I, and ironically, that journey led me to podcasting in and of itself being the vocation. So, and I that's what you're meant to do, though. That was your exactly. true calling, and it came. Exactly. You know, and now you're, you're impacting lives in a positive way. You know, right. and, and that's magical because it's all going to come back to you. More you give, the more you get. You're right. You're right. So I mentioned earlier that there, I think it's something in how we're raised and some of the messaging we're given as children that leads us to persist in a failing pursuit. Uh, what else do we need to be aware of as far as human nature? Because I think with all of this, we're really up against human nature. So what is it about human nature that drives us to continue to persist? in a failing pursuit, even if consciously we know better? That's a great, that's a great question. We probably need a long, a long hour conversation for that one. Um, we got time. But, you know, when we look at, when we look at ourselves, um, we have to understand, like some people don't even, you know, understand what a, what a cognitive bias is, right? Um, you know, we have some things in our, in our head, like when we're entrepreneurs, we, Maybe we put $10,000 or $20,000 into starting a business and sometimes a lot more, you know, we have that sunk cost fallacy, right? We put the money in, we got to get it out. You know, we have to, you know, we have to make this successful, right? So there's a few things that I address in my book besides loss aversion and this escalation of commitment, throwing, you know, good money after bad. Sunk cost fallacy is a major, major problem when someone is even renovating a home. Right, you bought a home, you put money into it, and then you want to sell it, but the market doesn't dictate, you know, the the sale price that you have in your mind. You know, a a person that's buying a house doesn't they don't like the color of the walls or the marble that you put or maybe the the moldings around, you know, the windows. They have a different taste and they don't right. justify those costs in their mind that like you would, right? But you've put the hard work in there and the money behind it and we have that sunk cost fallacy and that happens in project management you know, in any type of investment scenario. But then, you know, we also have attribution theory, right, where we have sometimes an exaggerated sense of our, of our own abilities even, right? And we get this overconfidence. And sometimes that overconfidence affects even, even getting feedback, right, when someone gives us a critique on our work or what we're trying to do. Because we have this attribution theory, this bias, um, that overconfidence it, it creates us, we're, I don't want to say blinded, but we're kind of, we're foggy. You know, we don't really see, you know, the answers in front of us. And what we do with attribution theory is we try to support evidence for our own views, our own way of interpreting things. And we disregard, you know, what everyone, you know, what everyone's telling us. If you look at an example, Enron, right, which is a big scandal in the markets, um, you know, they basically they exemplify how, you know, attribution leads to escalation of commitment. He was the CEO, if, if, if the audience doesn't know, Ken Lay, CEO of yeah. um, Na National Gas Company in, in like 1985, I think, if I'm correct with my timing. And then eventually that became, um, you know, Enron. Enron, um, yeah. They merged I'm, with a few companies. As yeah. soon as you said Ken Lay, I knew what you were talking about. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. you know, if you look back at them, you know, they collected and traded natural gas at much lower cost than companies 
um, you know, that had to drill for the resource and the profits really skyrocketed. But he attempted to implement like a similar strategy in other commodities, not just natural gas. Right. And then they failed to produce profits. Right. What, what he did in natural gas didn't work for oil or, you know, other other types of commodities. So even though he had, you know, he had failures, like the, the writing was on the wall. He was unwilling to admit it. He was unwilling to admit defeat. He ignored all the internal warning signs. Right. And then instead of using the 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 usual legal accounting methods, they used unusual accounting. They hide these these uh, these failed deals from investors. And ultimately, the company blew up. Everyone knows the story. You know, Ken Lay never went to jail because he passed away prior. Um, but others went to jail and, and, you know, spent years and years because, you know, Ken Lay, Ken Lay was unwilling to admit, you know, that he had this flaw. He didn't want to lose. He believed in his own theories, his overconfidence that he can hide it and turn it around. And it didn't happen. And this happens a lot, um, you know, to entrepreneurs and, and, and business leaders. Yeah, you know, I have a, and I think, you know, micro version of it is, and I'm thinking about this myself, is look at the recurring charges on your company's debit card every month, things you subscribe to that you haven't used in a long time that sure. you hold on to because you swear you're going to get back to it sometime soon or you're going to follow through with it. But is that <laughs> realistic so going to happen? <laughs> and, but see, the thing is, you know that if you cancel it, and then want to come back later that you might have to pay more money because you might be grandfathered in at a rate that's no longer available, or you might have to go through some induction process again, which will cost you time and money because you'd essentially be starting from scratch. And uh, so you think, I've already gone this far into it. Why quit now? But that might, yeah. as I look at it, it might be the reason to quit now because and part of this, actually, candidly, is self-talk right now. Sometimes as a host, I yeah. end up gaining lessons from the guests and having transformations in real time. It doesn't happen very often, but this is one of them. So now I'm thinking to myself, all these things that I haven't attended, haven't used in a long time. Well, if I've been saying that for a year or two now, is that really likely to change? And of all the things I held on to for longer than I needed them, and then I canceled them. Did I go? Did I ever go running back? When's the first time? Tell me when the first time is. <laughs> so this is a common, you know, you're not the only one. You know, we all have these type of dilemmas from time to time because what Kahneman and Tversky came with, they won the Nobel Prize for this, for this loss aversion, prospect theory, they call it. And um, depending how things are framed, positive or negative, you know, we will persist even in the losing endeavor. And because we don't want to lose, we don't want to give up things, you know, we own it. That's our, you know, that's our possession, you know, so it's challenging, right? It's challenging being a human being in, in our world, especially now. Um, it's very complex, right? So we have to constantly monitor ourselves. And we have to monitor, do I have these flaws from time to time? Am I making, you know, an irrational decision? Have I critically thought this through? Um, but we could. The good thing is that it's not some impairment that we can't correct over time, you know, and I've tried to improve myself and I'm not perfect. Um, but now that I'm aware of these things, I can make better decisions. And that was the point of writing the book. Yeah. Some, and again, we're up against human nature here. So this is, um, this is a pretty, 
I mean, this is a very timely topic. This may seem simple, and we may think we have the answer to this, but the, as you share with us, there's so much more to it. So what can we do to improve our odds of not falling prey to this escalation of commitment to a bad investment? Okay, so I mentioned earlier monitoring, right? Monitoring yeah. ourselves, monitoring our business, you know, which most leaders do anyway. They monitor their business, you know, their their data, their 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 financials, their projections, right? Next step would be, you know, how how have these changes, if any, impacted, you know, my goals, my plans, my values, right? We really have to think about, you know, how these changes or effects have, you know, changed our business plan, our core business plan that we started. Even any partnerships, joint ventures any future growth prospects, you know, then, you know, we must ask ourselves some tough questions. Why should I continue with this business, right? There should be some compelling reasons. If we can't write any down, we should pause and think really clearly about that. Um, and we should list them out, right? I should continue with this business and we should cross check them against, you know, some other questions, right? Am I trying to justify my decision to continue because I feel responsible or because, you know, I don't want to be wrong. I don't want to lose. Why am I deciding to go forward? We should also ask ourselves, you know, um, because am I am I continuing with this endeavor, even though it doesn't look so positive right now because, you know, I don't want to quit, okay, or I don't want to lose. I don't want to lose face, right, embarrass, you know, like tell my family and friends I didn't make it, you know. So, and we have to ask, you know, are am I continuing this because, I want to make up for a past loss, you know, maybe just get things back to whole or, you know, try to make it right for my shareholders, even though I know it's going to be a difficult task. And then, right, um, you know, most of the time from what I've analyzed with uh, talking to a lot of investors and a lot of decision makers and leaders, I should say, you know, they just don't want to lose face, right? And what I mean by that, they don't want to be embarrassed. They don't want to be known as someone that failed at something. So they try to hide that by trying to create solutions that sometimes are really not um, applicable or even clear enough, right? So I always say, just keep on monitoring. I try to always, if people say, how can I avoid a bad decision? Well, critically think, look at all the areas, you know, write it down on paper. I'm doing this because I believe this is the outcome I want to achieve. How am I going to get there? You know, and then Continually keep on monitoring the environment for changes and how they affect you. Those simple little steps um, can make a big difference, right? Because yeah. I'll give an example, when I had my, I had a mortgage real estate company back in 2004, five, six, seven, all the way up to eight. And I didn't see the cracks in the armor, how lenders, you know, who were giving free cash to everybody, basically, they had very low standards, you know, the banks yeah. during that time, very low, you know, rates. I didn't see the cracks, which were rates were rising. Home values were not going up as much as they used to in the past. You know, people were living beyond their means. The rating agencies had, you know, had lower standards even, you know, even for their A and B type of, you know, ratings. Um, banks were going out of business. People would, the default ratios were going higher. There was a lot of evidence going up to 2007 and eight. Okay, and unfortunately, as an enthusiastic entrepreneur, I wanted to do business and I was doing loans and I was helping people get their homes. And, you know, I missed some of the data because um, I was scattered. I had seven offices. I had a big business. I was making a lot of money. And 
you know, I didn't look at those cracks. And unfortunately, I didn't see the ultimate financial crisis come when uh, when I should have in 2008. Um, but I'm here again. You know, you live and learn and you rebuild. And that's what it's about. Well, certainly. Now, we're at a point now where we almost every day we hear something about artificial intelligence and AI. And I'm seeing it's already reached the point where you can use artificial intelligence through prompts to create business plans. So not only create business plans, but also design projects, design workflows, uh, do cash flow projections, revenue projections, marketing projections, all sorts of stuff. Now, can it also help us figure out when to walk away from a failing project? You know, I'm, I'm a believer in AI and what it could do potentially. You know, I'm also fearful about all the jobs it may take away and the lives it could potentially, you know, harm as far as how do we, how do we earn as human beings um, if it's doing all the work for us. But um, I've seen some pretty interesting things. Let's look at financial services in particular. Um, you know, it's been widely adopted AI for, you know, big data analytics, um, even investment decisions to try to get returns. It's not there 100%, um, you know, as far as the performance that we want to see, although it's getting better. Um, on the creative side, it's definitely able to, you know, write music and stories and things of that nature. But um, as far as, you know, when to quit on a business, I don't think the technology is ready to make those final decisions. There's always going to be some human element involved, even some gut instinct sometimes, um, even though that's contrary to, you know, what I'm trying to say, but, you know, the computer, the AI, it can't see the real world, the day to day. It can't see the passion in the employees. It can't see the hard work. Um, it might not even see the big picture thinking that, you know, a potential partnership or joint venture or an acquisition can bring. It can only see the data that's input by another human. It can only see what's readily available. You know, but some of the other factors, those other variables, can easily turn down, you know, turn around a business. You know, if uh, if we if we go after those initiatives, right, as a solution. So eventually, AI might know it all, right? And we might get to a world where we have a Terminator scenario. I'm not 100% sure on that, right? I can't predict the future, but I think, you know, you can use AI to benefit a business. But I think ultimately, you know, learning creating knowledge, looking at case studies on how other businesses failed and succeeded, you know, watching pod, like participating in podcasts where you bring better leaders than me and better decision makers, and they can teach, you know, some other skills, even seeing how other successful um, business leaders have done it on you know, some video blogs and different um, YouTube videos, right? We can build our experience and we can kind of put ourselves in a better position um, for when those things happen, those changes where we can make better decisions. I wouldn't rely 100% on AI right now because um, I've seen some, um, you know, not horror stories, but I've seen some poor direction, um, <laughs> poor, poor guidance uh, from the AI side because it's not perfect, like any new technology that's starting to take hold. Um, but it may get there. Okay, I have to believe it will. Right. Well, here's here, here's the thing about artificial intelligence is we're still at the point where it needs fact checked. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I agree with you. Uh-huh. 
Yeah, like uh, like it can do, like it, it can do it can do amazing things. Uh, for example, just for kicks, uh, about a month or two ago, I went to an artificial intelligence application that I use called QuickWrite, and it's uh, it's specifically designed for authors, bloggers, and podcasters to generate. I mean, you can actually create your entire book uh, within a. Uh, you know, within a very short period of time, but then you have to go back and you have to fact check it and humanize it and every other thing. Uh, for example, just for giggles, I uh, went to QuickWrite and I basically prompted it to create a biography of Ron DeSantis. Within the first sentence, wow. it told uh, within the first sentence it told me that his father had been a police officer and his mother owned a bakery. Was it true? No, 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 no. His dad, no, his dad was the yeah. guy who installed the Nielsen boxes, and his mother was a nurse. Now, I, uh, I moved wow. on from DeSantis, and I said, write me a biography of Joe Biden. Uh, so I tried that one, and uh, this one told me that he served in the Korean War. Oh my God! Yeah, he was. Yeah, okay. he, yeah, he was born in 1942. It's pretty unlikely. Wow. I want to try that just to see what it says about me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I tried oh, I, I, oh, I tried the one about me and it basically pulled a biography of a uh, of a top 40 performing artist. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So so so, okay. so 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 we have to bear in mind is artificial intelligence uh is basically pulling data that exists on the internet through search and other databases. However, it also is, to a degree, dependent on the efficacy of those sources and how keywords link to data, which is far from perfect and is, to a degree, obfuscated by some of the information that's available on websites today. So you have to keep all that in mind. So as far as artificial intelligence, I trust it to create swipe files for me. Hmm. Okay. It'll get there eventually, but I, I always, if I'm a creator, a creative type, and I'm using AI to build all my content, write my books, write my music, what's left for me? Why am I even doing it? You know, if I have to rely on, you know, a computer to do it. Yes, I understand the efficiency of a time manager and everything else and making money, but um, I love the part of creating. That's why I'm in investment banking, private equity you know, uh -huh. building a company, creating and creating jobs and all the wonderful things that go along with it. Um, so I'm not a I'm not a big user of AI. Let's see. Let's, right. That's my statement. That's all. Yeah, I think I think because it's there gonna, are too many flaws. Yeah, I think it's going to become uh, more. It's going to acquire more efficacy as time goes on, but it's not something we can exclusively rely on. And I do see folks who say, yeah. "Oh, I got Chat GPT. I can just." Type in uh, what I need, and it just gives it to me. I don't even have to think about this anymore. Wrong. No. <laughs> then that, I mean, <laughs> because, because, because your next step, and this is what so many people miss when they create artificially intelligent content, and they want to use it for their website or their blog, is are you even running it through the validator that will tell you whether search engines will recognize it as artificial content or real? And wow. I would have to say the majority of them are not aware that this these websites that they're writing within 30 seconds or these blog posts they're writing within 45 seconds are less likely to get spidered and featured and more likely to get penalized 
because they yeah. are not aware of the humanization step. Because everyone wants it now, right? Yeah. We, we uh, at least some of the, some of the people I mentor, you know, they, they want instant gratification and they want it now instead of putting in a little bit more time, a little bit more effort to make it even more magical and special as far as whatever they're, they're trying to create or do. Um, you know, we lost those old school values of just working hard and, you know, achieving whatever greatness you want. Um, I think we're going to get back to it, though. Everything's in a cycle, right? These cycles happen in markets, in economies, our life cycle, you know, so the trend, you know, the hot button right now is AI, AI. I see all these stocks going up, you know, to have AI components. Um, but when the trend changes or when people get tired of it, you know, or we just want to do things themselves again, what happens? Right. Um, how yeah. much are we going to rely on it, really? And I think you and, and if I think I'm running you, a multi-billion dollar company, yeah. I'm not relying on AI <laughs> to make my decision. No, no. I think you hit on something, though. When you mentioned instant gratification, people want it now. And I think that this might actually lead us into some of these uh, EOC scenarios, as you call them, uh, escalation of commitment. And it goes back to some of the entrepreneurial mindset is, particularly for somebody who's relatively new in business, they get sort of punch drunk on the power of, I can make a decision and it'll happen. And they think that yeah. they understand these stories of people like Steve Jobs or Elon Musk or Bill Gates or uh, or uh, Jeff Bezos, uh, just to name four. And they think that these guys are random and that they just make sweeping decisions and and go balls of the wall on it. But if they actually looked into the I mean, biographies of guys, those guys types of to leaders, make mistakes in their life. Yeah, and they and and that that's actually part of how they console themselves. They say, "Well, yeah, these guys also lost a lot of money, and then they made it again." Okay, that's easier said than done, particularly when you're in the valley. And when you look but, at the but actual, those guys had an advantage. They had a team. They had a board of directors. They had uh -huh. smart minds around them. Not yeah. that we don't have you know a team or whatever, but they had you know billions of dollars that they raised that they can put into an infrastructure. I mean, Amazon lost money for years and years and years, okay, but they were able to secure capital from, you know, investors and, you know, the financial markets, right? So they can prolong, you know, they could prolong that pain, let's say, until they finally got some things right, you know? So it's, it's tough when, you know, people say Warren Buffett is the greatest investor of all time, but he's always had, you know, an unfair advantage over a common investor, let's say a smaller investor who didn't have billions of dollars from investors to go buy, you know, companies during financial crises and buy different types of companies that are, were accelerating in growth. So it really is, you know, we have to look at our own resources and capabilities, right? right. When we, when we try to, you know, evaluate this stuff, uh -huh. um, because you know, we, we, we don't have the same resources or, or we may be capable, but we don't definitely don't have the same resources as some of these, these billionaire entrepreneurs. Yeah. And I, I think another, I think another thing they miss is, that uh, they believe that there is a certain model that entrepreneurs follow, but part of the nature of entrepreneurship is breaking models. Recall in 2022, when Elon uh, launched his takeover bid on Twitter, and through, about halfway through the process, it was determined that the company was probably overvalued due to there being a lot more bots on it than had been originally forecast. And Elon tried to get out of the deal 
uh, or at least have the price reduced, and the courts wouldn't let him do it. So he had to go through with his acquisition at $54.20 per share. Uh, so anyway, he takes over the company, and what were people expecting? That he'd probably bring in a branding team to change the logo, uh, probably – uh, make some minor edits to the company's policies and procedures, uh, probably shift around a couple offices in the C-suite and bring in one or two of his own people. No, he freaking wrecked that place. And they called him a... And, and then, and then they called him a... In the room. Yeah, and then, they, and then they called him a failure. But the way I was looking at it is, well, it hasn't really failed at all. It actually is doing, in my view, just fine. Uh, Elon is not afraid to lose a few billion, billion dollars here and there. He knows what it's like to be in a situation that's not ideal, but to make the best of it. And even before the acquisition made through, went through, I made I made a prediction that within two years that Twitter would no longer exist and some of its functionalities would be wrapped up into something completely different. That ultimately what Elon was buying was the infrastructure and the user database. Now, here's some evidence. Mm. Uh, they've already changed the name. It's now called X. It's no longer called Twitter. So already we have a name change. They have, they, yeah, you hear these, you know, these media outlets whining that he chased off advertisers. But what's actually happened is he's brought in different advertisers and he's Im implemented this whole new monetization model that's based on linking advertisers to influencers and the algorithms that influencers generate so it's actually a form of democratization the more an influencer can create algorithmic love and the more they can create excitement and energy on the platform that causes more users to want to log in and stay in longer thereby increasing the lifetime value of the customer or the average usage time of a member per day that creator gets paid more money. So he's now enlisted his own users to help him generate revenue for the model. Then there's a thing, uh, you know, buying the check marks, for example. Well, that's real simple. He's identifying of of this user database, who are the real users versus who are the ones who signed up one time to take part in some giveaway. Yeah. Because he wants to know who the real Mark. users are so he can center his data, his data generation efforts on them to determine what's next for it. Now, I still hold to my prediction. We're almost a year into the acquisition as of our conversation. Then a year from now, the platforms we know will not exist. It will have been wrapped into something else. Let's see. I, I think you're, you may be correct, you know, and I'd like to see if that happens. Then then you should definitely get a, an increase in your pay at that point. You need I to be somewhere on like some I, cer I certainly should. I certainly should. So I bring, <laughs> I bring, so I bring this up because... Some might look at Elon's acquisition of Twitter, now known as X, as an escalation of commitment issue. I think part of it was that he was legally forced to go through with the deal and had to make the most of it. But I don't really know if it was escalation of commitment or more of having the flexibility to pivot and experiment. I mean, first, I mean, for, I mean, he acquired it for what, $44 billion or something like that. I mean, yeah, that's a hit, but it's not the end of his world. Well, he first, can, he can, he can, he can, he can afford to wait it out. Go ahead. A couple of things. Um, I think that his hands were tied. I think if he could have got out of it when he, when he realized that the picture wasn't what he initially thought, 
he probably would have gotten out of it. But yeah. he went forward, okay? And if he escalated, look at how he financed it, okay? He financed it, financed it using stock, right. okay? Stock that he held that he had over $200 billion worth of, right? So it wasn't like he took money out of his cash deposits at the bank, okay? Right. He pledged stock and took a loan against that stock and funded you know, the transaction, right? He used that stock as collateral, basically. And stock, for all, all purposes, is just paper. It's electronic, okay? It's not, it's not real. You can't just go take it, right? Um, so the point is, he had another advantage over you and I, let's say, if we wanted to buy X, you know, formerly Twitter. Um, so it's really, you know, what's the play there? I think he is going to wrap it into something else as well. I think there's a bigger strategy. He's a high-level thinker you know, big thinker, entrepreneur, you know, him going forward with this type of endeavor, he had, he had, you know, he was probably thinking 10 steps ahead on the chessboard. Okay. And even though he might have to pay a price that ultimately he thought was too much, he used his stock and Tesla stock at that time, I think was higher than it even was right now. Um, So, you know, you have to look at all the variables, right? What's the end game for him? Is he going to relist it? You know, down the road, take it public, uh, a new stock trading on the New York Stock Exchange. Is it going to be sold to another private equity fund, maybe one of his competitors? There's lots of exits he can kind of, you know, think about as he goes forward. Right. And this is a guy that, you know, he's he's an extremely intelligent person. Whether you like him or not, you know, he's a, he's a big thinker and he has the brain to go behind it. Um, it's just not wishful thinking. Well, remember, this is a guy who after he cashed out of paypal i think he got something like 20 billion dollars when he cashed out of it and he took the entire 20 billion dollars and invested in three other companies and then hit up a buddy of his because he needed money for rent (laughs) and 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 that that that, that was an urban legend but elon has confirmed that that actually happened that's extreme courage and belief in yourself yeah that's that's one thing that, you know, as an entrepreneur, we, we should have, right? Self-confidence, um, you know, self-esteem. You know, these things do drive us, you know, forward. And sometimes that causes us, you know, to go down that escalating path. So how do we know the difference? You know, we have to continually keep on fact-checking ourselves, right? And monitoring ourselves and monitoring that environment and really looking back to when we started this, you know, who were we, what we were doing, how we were doing it, what was the business model? Um, it doesn't take long to evaluate. Okay, it just takes the desire and the willingness. You're absolutely you're absolutely right. So as we wrap up here, Vincent, I wonder if some of our listeners have been leaning into this and thinking, "Oh God, I am in an escalation of commitment trap," or they may be thinking, "I wonder if I'm headed toward an escalation of commitment trap." Am I going to get sucked into something that I may not be seeing on my radar screen right now? These could be real concerns. So as we finish up here, what is one thing that you would urge our listeners to do or consider as soon as they finish streaming this and we're up in a couple minutes? One thing, well, I would have to say two things that are kind of aligned we always have to check our values and goals, right? How do these things affect all our decisions? How do they affect our values and goals in life, right? 
does this impact my goals? Does it take me off my path, what I wanted to achieve? Um, you know, I, I always make sure that my values are aligned with my goals and that my goals are not affected by, you know, by the decisions I make in, in, a, in a negative way, I should say. If they're affected in a positive way, then that's great. But just keep on checking your values and goals and see if the environment has changed and how that's impacted you. Yeah, I think that's very important. So what I encourage everybody to do right now is visit Vincent's website. It's www.vincentdefilippo.com. I'm going to spell that for you slowly, although you could just go to our website and see it in the show notes. But I understand there are folks out there who may be walking, jogging, um, hopefully not driving and texting, but maybe. I can give you a short email right if you want. Ooh, I, I, yeah, because I have vincentdefilippo.com. But is yeah, there that's, a short... a, that's a long one. We're going to revise that one. one, but if you want to check my, my investment company, my, my website, it's simpler. Okay. It's, it's, um, Vienna cap.com V I E N N A C A P.com. Okay. Vienna capital partners is my, my firm here on, on 40 wall street, in New York. And, uh, my, uh, if anyone wants any, any advice, questions, you know, um, I'm an open book. I want to be friends with the world. I made a new friend today, and uh, I'm I'm very honored to be here. So uh, DRV, which is Dr. V, at ViennaCap.com. Um, anytime anyone needs help, especially from your audience, you know, please reach out. It'll be my pleasure to try to help in any way possible. Well, thank you so much. But I and I also encourage people to visit your personal website, VincentDFilippo.com. Uh, you are a Renaissance man. I mean, you've got books in different categories, including thrillers, romance, and finance. Uh, I mean, you've got a very Everything I love. blog going on there. You can see some of your interviews, not only in this podcast, but others as well. It's it's quite it's quite a thing. So check there to get to know the man. And actually, now that I think of it, the blog is coming soon, but you want to be the very first one to listen to. And if you email Vincent at DRV, which stands for Dr. V, at Vienna cap.com just mention you're on the business creators radio show and you want to connect real simple i get nothing for that i'm just a friend helping a friend with that vincent Filippo, thank you so much for being with us today it's been an honor and believe me in education the honor is all mine and it was an extreme pleasure and i wish everyone listening um, much success in all your endeavors and uh you know keep going we trust you enjoyed today's episode of the business creators radio show Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.